Hi, I'm Meredith. And I'm Kristen. And we'd like to welcome you back to The Writer's Story. It is a beautiful, beautiful spring day here in Charlottesville. And um, we have it's a very exciting weekend here because it's the Virginia Festival of the Book. Yes. So we have been distracted by all sorts of wonderful panels and meeting authors and uh, absorbing their words of wisdom. Um, today we have a special guest. We're excited to welcome Patty Smith. Patricia A. Patty Smith will join us in a little while. And we're excited to hear about her writing and her story. Um, but uh, first we just wanted to sort of talk about, I think one of the things that's on our minds is how to balance your writing with all the wonderful, distracting things that happen in your life. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've each had so many other things going on, and I'm sure that never happens to you, other writers out there in writer world, but <laughs> I never, had some house never. guests for a few days, which was delightful, and then immediately went on to a vacation elsewhere um, and had a wonderful time. But in the course of those things, of course, my writing schedule was uh, severely compromised. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And Meredith, you've been um, busy with a number of things. Yes, yes. Um, job transitions, um, teaching. I, I'm teaching a, a class starting Tuesday, mystery writing at Writer House, and um, I moderated two panels at the Festival of the Book, which is always a pleasure, but is very um, time-consuming in order to do it correctly and make sure that you are respectful of the writers and their time and energy. And then um, I leave for Paris on Friday, so <laughs> so yeah, that was it's a lot a lot to go on, and I really haven't uh, written very seriously in weeks, and that is um, really challenging. I think, I think I sort of approach it two ways. The first is, I think breaks are actually good. And I hate to say that because I'm also the, you know, you, know, you should write every day and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I do feel like I, it, it starts to disturb me. So I think sometimes I worry when I have a three-week space where I'm not writing and I say to myself, oh my God, you're never going to write again. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But I think uh, mental breaks are good. I think sometimes when you come back to it, yeah, you are refreshed. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to think so. I have the same experience of feeling um, sort of discombobulated and I'll, I'll say crudely unhappy when I'm not um, doing some writing or attending to the work of writing in some fashion. But there are times in our lives when when we simply can't. And I'd like to think that those can be fruitful in a different way if we let ourselves accept the times we can't write as real breaks. Yeah. Yeah. I think though too, I feel, I do feel strongly that writers sort of never stop. I mean, someone said being a writer is always having homework. Um, uh -huh. I think that's very true, but I, I, I think you have to go out in the world and have experiences. And I think your trip to Key West, I'm sure there's things that happened and conversations you had yes. that start to sort of form ideas in your mind or, you know, Absolutely. spending time with your guests, 
you know, hearing their experiences. Um, I feel like I do a lot of journaling when I travel. Um, it's sort of a different headspace. Um, and I think also I've been very interested in the whole notion of creativity coming from the quiet spaces. Yes. And yes. so I think busyness can sort of occupy every corner of our brain and we need to sort of relax and, you know, maybe sit by the water. Yeah. Yep. In order to be creative. Yeah. Yeah. I think it can be very fruitful. And maybe the discombobulation and um, distress of not working can be fruitful. I'd like, because I think tomorrow, tomorrow's a Monday, and I, I try to treat my writing somewhat like a nine-to-five job, really showing up no matter how I feel, <laughs> and um, attending to the work. And I am excited, frankly, to get back into things tomorrow. So um, time will tell. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> how that works. We'll see how it how, how it works. shakes out. Yeah, yeah. And and I think um, I, one of the questions I asked the writers on my panel um, yeah, uh, Friday was, um, how do you fit writing into your life? And uh, all three of them had jobs. Yeah. Um, and so they all talked about different ways that they do it, um, whether they write every day or not. And uh, uh, Grandma Callister on my panel, she. Um, she had two small children, and she said, even when I am not writing, I am thinking about my book. And I think that that's, we don't give enough credit to the work that you do when you're not in front of your computer. You're yeah. thinking about the characters, and you're thinking about yeah. issues in your book. And then, and then when you get there, you're ready to start tackling it because you've actually been thinking about it. So. Yes. Yeah, I've been reading a book um, of Shirley Jackson's writings that was collected posthumously. It's called Just Let Me Tell Let Me Tell You. And oh, it's such a delight. And it, um, it reveals some of the circumstances of her writing. She was incredibly prolific and raised four kids. Actually, one of her books, I think, is called Raising Demons or um, something about or the savages. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so anyway, she writes a little bit about that um, process of writing that isn't necessarily the putting of pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard, but of processing in one's mind um, uh-huh. what will come to the page. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, and you said you saw. You went out and saw a bunch of things at the festival. I did. Oh my goodness! I I went to a panel with a couple of, of a couple of poets, each of whom were bilingual. One a native Navajo, and the other a child of Vietnamese immigrants. And their poetry was so interesting for its, uh, in a lot of ways, but the rhythm and sounds. I think were informed by their um, other languages as well. They read in English, just fantastic. And a couple of panels with fiction writers that were delightful in different ways. One um, that I hope we'll return to in our conversation with Patty Smith had to do with Southern literature and what is Southern literature, <laughs> who is a Southern writer. Yep. Um, and yeah, that was also interesting for that theme 
and then also for the variety of styles that each of those writers represented, or um, I should say that they had. It reminded me of the many, many ways that writing can take shape and that being true to oneself and one's experiences is a way of finding one's voice and that that particular voice of a particular writer is the thing that sings sort of counterintuitively for readers. The thing that's most particular to the individual writing is the thing that somehow becomes universal and connects people. Yeah. I love what you're talking about place. I think, you know, one of the things that's sort of a sorrow to me, and I don't know if it's actually a reality or we all just sit around and grump all the time about how everything gets worse, but um, sort of regional voices and accents are something that give me so much pleasure that you feel like you, um, you know, I'm about to go to Paris. And I think the things that will make me sad are the things that I feel like, oh, I could be in any city in the world. And the mm-hmm. things that will make me the most happy are, ah, this is something you could only really get here. So yes. I have traveled so far to come to this place for this specific experience. And I think those things mm. are um, super special. Yeah. And I sort of, yeah. I'm sort of sorrowful about losing those, the specialness. But I think it is interesting when you do, you read a writer who is so set in a particular place. It does, it connects you. Yeah, it, it does connect you. And I'm trying to remember the phrase that um, Andy Straka used yesterday on our panel. He was borrowing it for some, from someone else, but it was like the, um, the the specificity of something is really often what connects a reader to your writing. Yeah. So you know, it's not you know a general salamander, but it's a specific salamander that looks a certain way. That then you know that then we are actually start seeing the scene as opposed to just and, and we believe it yes, because of those details. Yes. And that, that's something that's, um, that I sometimes struggle with in terms of making sure that I stop and really actually describe. Because I do see it. I just get impatient yes. you know, and want to charge ahead with the plot and not spend too much time <laughs> describing you know, the color of the water and the mud and the, you know, and the trees. But it does really help your reader start to, to understand what you're trying to convey. Yeah, yeah. And I think that people talk about that in improv. We were talking a little bit about improv earlier. And actually, one of the panels I went to had to do with improv in life. And um, I think about... <laughs> Who how... isn't doing improv every day? <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I da- put my toe in the improv pool a long time ago, and it was so much fun. And one of the things that I learned that has stayed with me is that when making up a scene, it was so much richer when you said, you know, the yellow 1971 Ford Mustang rather than a big old car. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has helped me uh, in my thinking about the ways I write as well. To bring that specificity can be a dab of the real and the true. Right, and just that confidence as a writer that you are willing to take that risk to go so specific. Yes. It gives, I think, gives your reader a sense that they relax a little bit because they feel like they're in good hands, that you know, you know the car. Yes. You know the car. And that's yeah. also very interesting because people will, we also talked about getting to know your uh, characters so well. 
that you could sort of ask me anything. And, I, you know, you don't, you try not to put all those details in your book because it can be quite tiresome, you know, their first memory, their first, you know, what their summer camp was like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may not have anything to do with the book. But if you know those things, it comes across yeah, very clearly. Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember if we've talked about already on the show the different techniques that writers use for getting to know those characters. But one of the women on one of the fiction panels said that she does write considerable backstories, lives with the characters mm-hmm. before, that, before she even starts to write the story. And another friend of mine who's written some wonderful fiction talks about subjecting her uh, characters to the Myers-Briggs inventory test <laughs> and figures out, are they, is this an INTJ person or, which I found delightfully interesting. Yeah, it's something I would never do. I just yeah. don't, I don't like the test myself. I don't either. So, but I feel, I feel very bad about making my character do that uh, after having to do it in the corporate world. <laughs> Uh, but it's, but yeah, you, you know, people interview their characters. They do all sorts of things, and then the question is, how do you reveal some of that information? And I, we were um, the panel I did yesterday is always a lot of fun, but exhausting, and it's um, it gives writers who are not published the opportunity to submit their first 100 words to my writing group, the Mosley Writers, and then we read them aloud and critique them. And I know it's very probably stressful for the writers, and um, we try to be very respectful. It's not about you know making anyone walk out of the room and say, "Oh, I just can't be a writer." It's about gently <laughs> encouraging, but but help, trying to help them because the first hundred words have to grab uh, an agent, but they also have to uh, an editor, but they have to um, they have to put your best foot forward, mm-hmm. and in so many ways. And so that, that was a very interesting uh, panel to do, to get a whole bunch of first hundred words and start to think about what does grab you and what is the voice doing and what is the style of the story and how you can tell so much <laughs> uh, from that. Um, but yeah, that, that I can't even know. I, I've lost my train of thought. I don't even remember where I got into with that. I started to go down the hundred words. <laughs> but it's good. It's a good reminder of the importance of those first hundred words. But also, rather than making that a paralyzing observation, that it's an opportunity to place your reader in the world that you'll be creating and giving them a sense of the sound and focus that you'll have through the book. Oh, and I know what it was. What I was trying to remember is that there are a lot of people that feel very concerned that if they don't tell you everything about the character up front, you're going to be quite lost uh, without understanding that a little piece of dialogue draws us sometimes into the story so much more rapidly than, than you know, specifying the store that they're in and the thing that they're buying and that all the people that are there and how old they are and where they are from and their background. And that is something that we, our eyes will glaze over because we don't care about them yet. Um, and the other thing it reminded me of is one of the problems that a lot of authors do is that they repeat all this information and a great device is to find somebody who doesn't know it and then you can have your character tell them. Yes. Yes. So that's why fish out of water is such a great technique people use again and again. I'm in a new place. 
everything yeah. is new to me, so I'm observing everything. And then people will ask me things because they don't know me. So they'll say, who are you? What do you do for a living? And the, re <laughs> and the reader gets to eavesdrop on eavesdrop, that conversation. And they get and to learn, learn a lot. Yes. And how do you convey yourself? And how do you, what are you telling? Are you telling lies about yourself? Yeah. You know, yeah. Ripley. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that, those are things that are always interesting to see. And I think um, just starting my, my class on Tuesday... I feel this is a great opportunity to learn um, from others' mistakes, which sounds uh, strange, but it's like, I think so often we'll pick up a master like Shirley Jackson, and it's so impossible to see how she did it. Mm. You know, she's so talented. She leads us on this so thing. Easy. She ties it up, and it just looks effortless. And when you, when you read something by someone in a first or a second draft, and they're yes. laboring over it, and they're making a lot of mistakes, it suddenly you understand what you are in fact, the mistakes you are in fact making. Yeah. So I, I think that that's a wonderful, that I think I encourage everyone to do critique groups and that kind of thing, because it does, you read stuff in process and then you start to understand and then you can start identifying those mistakes when you make them. Yeah. Yeah. It's an excellent point. Well, I'm very excited to um, have a conversation, continue this conversation uh, with Patty Smith. Yeah, find out what she has to add. We're just thrilled to have as a guest today, Patricia A. Patty Smith. Um, she is the author of many short stories and essays and a debut novel, The Year of Needy Girls, which was the Lambda Literary Award finalist. It is an engrossing, gripping read, highly recommended. Again, it's The Year of Needy Girls. And so we're just so excited, Patty, to have you on our show today, and we're excited to talk about craft and process and upcoming stuff and whatever else fills in. So welcome. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to chatting. Great. So um, could you tell us a little bit about um, the Year of Needy Girls, the process you engaged in to write this novel that is just brilliant oh thanks um sure yeah i so this is a story that had its origins in a true story um i was teaching fifth and sixth grade at the time in cambridge massachusetts when a young boy um jeffrey curley was abducted by his next door neighbor and he was sexually molested and murdered uh, it was horrific, obviously, and it was something that really, um, mar it really marked all my students. They were, they knew him, they were devastated by this, um, and they also kept saying, but uh, what happened is Jeffrey had gotten into the car with his neighbor, and the kids kept saying, well, we know we're not supposed to get in the car with strangers, but this wasn't a stranger. This was someone he knew, you know, so it really rocked their world and ours, too, and, um, and so also, as it happens, there was a lot of fear among those of us in the LGBTQ community that this might provoke, um, this happened back in the 80s. And we thought it might, I think, 80s or 90s, I'm not sure now. Um, but we thought it might provoke a backlash. Mm -hmm. um, and we were kind of, uh, I think we felt a lot of tension around it and a lot of fear without even necessarily expressing that do you know what I mean like we would just it it, it stayed yeah. with me anyway for a really long time and I thought about it and I um and then consequently I was I was thinking about um a story 
when my siblings started having kids and I was thinking about how the ways in which homophobia could hurt a family, the way it could break apart a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started writing that story and then I just kept thinking about this Jeffrey Curley situation and the fear around that. And it became more about how homophobia could hurt a town. Mm. Um, and that was kind of the origin of it. And I kept saying to myself, well, what if, you know, what if, it, it, Jeffrey Curley's parents, as it happened, came out um, very publicly in saying that this had nothing to do with LGBTQ people, that, you know, this man was obviously um, disturbed and it had nothing to, you know, he wasn't a gay man, he was a pedophile and so forth and so on. And they were very, very clear about that, which was a huge relief. And I just kept wondering, well, what if that hadn't been the case? You know, yeah. what if it had kind of fueled a bit of a, um, a fire against LGBTQ people. And so that's how, that's how, that's the origin, I guess, of the book. Yeah. So you're thinking about it. Sounds like took place for a good while, maybe before you started even putting pen to paper. That's right. And then I, um, I got, so I got my MFA at BCU and, um, it was actually the year after I graduated Tom DeHaven, he often offered um, a novel workshop, a novel writing workshop. But for some reason, while I was a student, it wasn't offered those three years. So he offered it my, or he might have my first year and I wasn't eligible, I can't remember. But he offered it the year after and I asked him if I could attend. And he said, sure. Great. So I know, it was incredible. Um, And I, so it really started, I started writing it then. like the very few, like, I think, I think at that point I might've even written the opening scene, um, in that workshop. Yeah. Uh, and I got a very, you know, got a lot of positive response to it and stuff like that, but it took so long to write the book. I think because for a variety of reasons, I think one of them is that I'm not sure I really believed I could do it for a while. You know, there was yeah. that, that self doubt where I just, I kept, you know, I don't know. I, I, I kept working on it, but then there's this part of me that thinks that, um, there's something to be gained for always working on something and not finishing it. If you know what I mean? Like you can, it's easier to say, Oh, I'm writing a novel, I think than to then say, Oh, it's done. Um, and then to, I was just talking about this the other day. Like once you put it out in the world, like I was, I had a lot of, I was kind of terrified once it was finished. And then, um, you know, I was pretty lucky. I had, um, an editor, I, I sent it to one person and she took it. So that was kind of incredible, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and then when she said, Oh yeah, I'd love to publish that. And I was so excited. And then I was thinking, Oh my God, people might read it. (laughs) I love, I love what you're saying though. I think that there's so many times we have a lot of self doubt as writers. Um, I think I've had occasionally sometimes a really big idea and Uh I've kind of had the realization that I'm not, my talents are not quite up to tackling it the way I, it it justifies, you know, and that you care so much about the idea that you don't want to do it in a way that's just, you know, halfway. You want exactly. to really do it as well as you can. And, and, and part of the process, I think, of becoming the writer that can tackle it is working on it. Yeah. And it's so funny. I mean, Chris and I both have the same thing. I'm sure we're both like nodding as you're talking yeah. of, of working on something 
and then it gets to a place and you just don't know where to do what to do with it and you put it aside but it keeps niggling at you and I loved I loved hearing your, about your process there um, in yep. terms of yep and that was exactly it I think and then I you know and I wouldn't give up on it so I kept saying all right there's something there right I should just keep trying and keep trying and I'm not sure that it is the book that I envisioned once upon a time but that's okay it is what it is and you know I'm proud of it and I think that um I think I'm a little and we'll talk about this later I guess but I do think that's happening again in a certain way like this idea that I have right now I feel like oh can I do it can I you know can I pull it off but you just gotta keep going yeah and we, and we we love to ask writers sort of, you know, your origin story as a writer, um, sort of how you came to writing. and Oh, I think I've been writing my whole life. I think, I mean, I was one of those kids, you know, I just, I always made up stories. I always wrote shorts. Like I, I have this, so I have this really funny story too. When I was in sixth grade, we all had to take French at my public school where I went for some reason, we all took French mm-hmm. and I loved, and I, so as it turned out, I became a French teacher for about 10 years, but I loved it for, I've, I guess I've always loved language and I've always been really interested in it. And so as a kid, I remember in sixth grade French class trying to write stories in French, but all I knew were nouns. Like that's all I knew. <laughs> and so I would, <laughs> this has no action. <laughs> so my, French teacher, I would give her these stories with all these nouns and thrown in French and everything else was in English. And I would make, well, I wouldn't make her, but I would say, oh, I wrote a story, you know, can you read it? And she would very graciously, oh, sure, you know, with her smile. And my talk after I walked out of the room, I don't know. But I think I would produce one of, you know, once a week, I would produce one of these stories and say for her to read. (laughs) Did you save any of them? I didn't, but uh, here's another, when I was in eighth grade, I won um, a writing contest at my school, and I do have this story. It's four pages, and I think every natural disaster that can happen, <laughs> happens, like in these four pages. It was, called, it was called The Aftermath, which I was so proud of, you know, I thought this was like such a sophisticated title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's so, I mean, it's laughable, but, um, so yeah, so I always wrote stories, but funnily enough, as I got older and then when I, I went to Wesleyan university and actually my undergraduate thesis is a collection of short stories also. Wow. I, Cause I was able to do a, a creative thesis and I did. Yeah. Um, so then I thought, so I always thought, you know, this is what I would do, but I also was a teacher and I've, you know, been teaching my whole 34 years I've been teaching. Wow. And, um, so that competes for my time in some way too. And I, I have over the years loved it as passionately as I've loved writing. So, um, and that's hard, you know, that's a hard, um, balance, at least for me. It yeah. Was hard. Yeah. Oh, you've given us so many things to talk about. <laughs> I want to, so I want to talk about that. I mean, the balance, we talked a little bit earlier about the balance of between, writing and all the other demands that life places on us. And then also the, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the formal writing training. So it sounds like as an undergrad, your thesis was a collection of short stories, and then you did this MFA as well. And just reflections on the value. Now, what, where did that lead? How did that help or Mm -hmm. hinder if any, 
um, your writing journey. There's lots of things to talk about. Yeah, I well, I, I you know, I think it really helped my writing journey. I so when I was at Wesleyan, I took the short story classes I could, yeah. although. Um, Annie Dillard was teaching there at the time, and oh, I foolishly I never tried to get into a class with her. I don't know why. Um, but I did take a couple of short story classes. Um, and I think, I mean, for me, they were always good for my discipline. You know, they always helped. And the deadlines were always really helpful. Ah, yeah. <laughs> um, so so the, I think that in, initially was was really important. And then I guess I always wanted to do an MFA and I ended up doing it because I was at a point in my life, let's see, I was about, I was, I think 38 and, um, I had been in a long-term relationship that ended. And so I was living in Boston. I was living in Cambridge at the time. And, um, and I, and I loved my life there, you know, but I kind of thought, okay, I'm going to be 40 soon. And I don't want to wake up one day and say, what if? Like, what if I, you know, had pursued this? And I have to say that all this time while I was teaching, I was writing, I went to, you know, I would, every summer I would go to Provincetown. I would go to the Fine Arts Work Center yeah. in Provincetown. I did that for like two or three summers. And every summer I would find some writing workshop to take. And I was lucky in that I was teaching in a private school and um, they often paid for it. Oh, nice. Which was very nice. I kept making the argument that I said, I know I'm not a, you know, I was a French teacher, but I said, if I can do writing in the summer, I'm really, really happy. And then I'm a much better teacher. <laughs> Excellent <laughs> argument. <laughs> I would buy that and they would say, oh, okay. So um, I went to Bennington one summer. And so I was trying, you know, I was, I was taking local workshops at the Cambridge Center for Adult Ed. I was just kind of soaking up as much as I could. Um, and then... And, but I still, I guess, always wanted to do the MFA and I, I'm not sure why, I guess I just thought, um, I mean, part of me, I think is I like being a student that's, you know, here I am a teacher. Yeah. So I, I like that life, I guess. And, um, so anyway, when this relationship ended, I thought, why not, why not just see what's out there? And I applied to, I, I, and here's an interesting thing. I so in the meantime, when I was teaching French, I had been to Senegal, I had a Fulbright and I had gone to Senegal in West Africa for a year. And, um, I came back full, you know, of stories to tell, I thought, yeah. but I really thought I would do this as nonfiction. I thought I might want to write a memoir or write essay. I wasn't sure. So I applied to MFA programs thinking I would be a nonfiction writer. Oh. And I was accepted to, um, was it university of Arizona and, um, which has like, I don't know, it's like some like fourth at the time, like best MFA program or something like that in nonfiction. And then I was accepted to VCU and I was accepted to, um, it was Penn state. And, um, so I called a grad student in Arizona and, you know, I got the names of people I could talk to. And I think at the time, I don't know if it was Carolyn Forche. Somebody was out there that I wanted to work with. And um, I called a grad student who said, oh, God, you don't, you know, you're third, you're in your, no, don't come here. It's horrible. Everybody <laughs> 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 here is 22. And, and plus, if you write nonfiction, you're like, the, you're like the stepchild. And no, 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 no. So I said, oh, that doesn't sound so good. And plus, Arizona is kind of far away, you know, from everybody I know who was in Massachusetts. So. 
I drove, I hopped, it was spring break at school and I hopped in my Jeep and, and I drove down to VCU. I drove down to Richmond and everybody was so friendly. And one of the grad student, Nathan Long, who's still a good friend, he was a, a second year MFA student. He organized a little dinner of other grad students and we all went out and um, I met with Marita Golden, who was the head of the program at the time. And she said, oh, listen, I teach a year-long nonfiction class. I'd love to have you in it. And I thought, I'm going here. Like, why should I, you know, these people are so friendly. They're so, they're saying, come, please come, you know. Um, and, and then I had also, obviously, I had a, they had given me good money. So I came. And I think, to me, it was, I, I mean, I loved every minute of it. I thought it really probably, um, you know, I, I think the learning curve was shortened by doing the MFA for me. I, I would recommend it to people if they don't have to go in debt for it. I'm not sure it's really worth going in debt for it. And obviously the best way to learn how to write is to write and to keep writing And anyone. I mean, you don't have to have a formal degree for it, but, um, I, to me, spending three years surrounded by people who are dedicated to writing was, incredible, you know, yeah. and then also I think making some of those connections and being introduced to, you know, the visiting writers who come and, mm -hmm. and in Tom DeHaven's um, novel workshop, he brought agents, he brought in editors, he brought in, you know, people to kind of talk about all aspects of the process of right. And then obviously then the first novelist award, he's founded the first novelist award that year too. And I became involved in that. And I kind of um, coordinated that for three years. So um, one of the things we have been um, joyfully experiencing this weekend, um, and I hope you can come next year, um, okay. is the Virginia Festival of the Book, um, which we're so excited is in our hometown. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, and Kristen was talking a little bit about a panel on Southern writing and voices. And so, you know, just always curious to ask people because, you know, obviously you're from, from outside, <laughs> how you sort of put yourself in that Southern writing continuum. Is there such a thing? Is as there such a thing? A... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think it's a good question. I, I, you know, I don't know if this is okay. I was thinking about this in a slightly different way, but the, uh, so years ago, um, when I first got out of college, I lived in Paris and I remember, I don't remember who it was, but I used, again, I, well, I worked for a little while in a bookstore in Paris in this English language bookstore. Was it um, Shakespeare and company? No, no, yeah. I wish. I used to go hang out there a lot. <laughs> that sounds so cool. Yeah. It's so fun. And I know there was this woman, um, Odile Hillier, her name was, and she opened a bookstore in the sixth of Arrondissement, I think, near Odeon. And she, she uh, based it on Kramer books and afterwards <laughs> she had gone to school in DC. I think she had gone to American. I University. used to live two blocks from Kramer books. <laughs> <laughs> Love that bookstore too. You know, I had sought it out after I, I hadn't known it. I hadn't known mm -hmm. about it mm -hmm. until I went to Paris and met this woman. So she um, opened this bookstore, um, which is, the name is escaping me at the moment. And again, I used to show up all the time. So every, finally she said to me, do you want a job? And I was like, sure. You know? <laughs> so they were all the time anyway. But so I would go, she had all these readings and I, the biggest, I, I met Lawrence Sperlinghetti there, Ooh. which was crazy. You know, he came in, 
But um, so I'd go to all these readings, and I remember this one writer, she's American, I don't remember who it was, but she said she loved, she lived in Paris, and she said she loved it because she didn't hear English at all. And so English became like the private language of her writing is the way I think she described it. You know, it was, it lived in her head, but she wasn't surrounded by it. And it struck me, you know, I don't know if it's that profound, but it kind of struck me in the same way living here that, so now I feel like my mind is in New England. Uh, Interesting. And the year of needy girls is set in New England, right? It is. And I, so And I feel like that's just where my mind goes. Like I just, the settings, like New England is sort of more present in my head Mm. than it might be if I were there. Yeah. Wow. I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. um, I'm going to Paris actually on Friday. (laughs) Um, But I I did live there um, for about four months when I was in my 20s and started one of those books that you continue to go back to and go back to and go back to about Um, living there. No, it was, it was just something that occurred to me while I was there, but I think I went very internal. It's a, it's a book about um, a 12 year old girl who robs a bank (gasps) and it has changed. Yeah, I know it has changed multiple times. It started as a screenplay and then it was a novel and then it was another novel and then it was in the fifties and I think it has to be in the seventies and I haven't done that rewrite yet. So (laughs) There you go. Someday, someday I will get to the end of that book. But um, it, it it did. It's, it forced me to go very internal because it was so exhausting to be surrounded by another language. Yeah. Um, you just come home every day sort of wrung out. Yep. <laughs> you just had to, and just triumphant that you managed to, I don't know, order the right amount of fish. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if distance from your place of origin makes it, or from a place you've experienced, makes that place richer in your imagination or something? I think so. I think so. Or the longing for home or the something. Yeah. Yeah. I spent a long time also in New York, and and I think um, not feeling a little out of place because I grew up here in Central Virginia. It does. Yeah. It it does make you... It does. And I think, you know, it's funny because I wouldn't have ever said when I was young, I thought I wanted to live everywhere. I thought there were too many places in the world to settle down in one, you know, and I just thought, oh, I would travel (laughs) everywhere. But, you know, as I got older, I think that I'm still happy to travel, but I like the sense of rootedness and being in, you know, and being attached to a place. But and I think place matters so much to me in all of my writing, like in my nonfiction and my fiction. But um that I do think that I, I think it's ironic that I, I would never have said that I was someone who experienced homesickness, but I do think that place, um, I don't know, is, is really central to who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. And then therefore is really central to like my imagination too. Would you talk um, kind of following on that a little bit about the project that you're working on now? Sure. So also will be set partially up in Massachusetts. So I, and so I, as I mentioned before, I lived in Senegal and I was teaching, um, in, um, an area of Senegal called the Casamos, which is South of the, so Senegal has the Gambia stuck into it kind of right in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Which is an English speaking country. And the rest of Senegal is, uh, well, the official language is French, but, um, I lived south of the Gambia in this region called the Casamance, and the Casamance is this beautiful, lush, 
um, verdant region and that grows most of the food for the rest of the country, but mm. has always threatened to secede from the rest of the country, partially because it is kind of cut off by the Gambia. And also it's um, very different culturally. The North is, is predominantly Muslim, it's arid, um, and the South is um, primarily Christian and animist and um, hmm. just culturally it feels really, really different. And they have often felt, as I understand it, kind of neglected by the rest of the country, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. nobody kind of cares what goes on. So anyway, there have been these separatist wars. And right after I left, I was living there in 1988, 89, um, it, the, war, the, the war really flared up. And both the separatist soldiers and the government soldiers started using landmines. Oh, and, and planting them on the outskirts of the of the villages, but the people getting hurt predominantly are women and children. Yeah, because it's the women doing all the work and you know mm. going forth to get the water from the well and the fields and et cetera, et cetera. So I kept thinking it's the same thing. Like I kept thinking about that, yeah. and I kept thinking about I want to somehow tell that story. I want to get that story out, but I couldn't figure out a way to tell it. I couldn't. And I started thinking, you know, now it felt a little tricky to sort of tell, I don't know, to write a Senegalese story. I wasn't sure I could do that. So then I started thinking, I seem to be interested in parallel stories, like my first novel kind of has these two parallel stories, and I guess mm -hmm. I'm drawn to that way of storytelling. So I started thinking about a woman, um, uh, an American woman, and she lives in 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 Cambridge and Massachusetts, and she has gone to MIT. She's the youngest daughter of um, a military family. Her dad was in the military, and she has three brothers. So she's been kind of always trying to prove herself to them. Mm -hmm. And she becomes an engineer, and she works for um, a company I'm calling Accudine Technologies, and they um, manufacture the fuses for these landmines. Mm. They're a defense contractor. Mm-hmm. So the opening scene as I'm envisioning it right now is that Fatu and Jai, who's the Senegalese woman, is coming home from the well and she sets off the landmine and she loses a leg. Mm -hmm. um, but this is at the point in time when the American companies are starting to get out of that business in the late 80s, which was historically true. They were trying to cut back on that. You know, um, I think it was from like human, the UN, Human Rights Commission, right, had been asking or demanding, I don't know, that the U.S. Um, not be involved in landmine production. And so a lot of the companies immediately complied. And so what I've imagined is that this company, as a way of offering reparations, flies victims to the U.S. for their medical care. Hmm. And, and so Fatu ends up at um, Mass General Hospital in Boston, and Erin ends up, um, she volunteers so her brother has been killed. The other thing I'm imagining is that her story opens at the head of the Charles, where a, a bomb has been set off at the head of the Charles. Mm. Her, her brother is killed. She's dealing with her grief, and she decides to sign up for this program to work with Fatu, you know, to help her. Mm -hmm. um, and so their worlds kind of collide. So these are the so the two parallel stories then are this American woman who suffered a loss with her brother's yep. um, close encounters with a bomb, and Fatu, the, so Fatu is the Senegalese woman right. 
who has suffered a terrible loss, close encounters with a landmine. Yeah. Um, and so what is it like writing Fatu's character? Who? So you're a white woman from the United States. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of talk these days about, you know, rights in writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, and also the challenge, of course, of, of inhabiting the life of a person who looks very different from oneself and who's... Um, cultural experiences are different from the writers. What is that like for you? Or what do you think about that? Um, well, it's definitely daunting, you know, and I feel like, um, and, and, and in some small ways, I might even say a little bit paralyzing because I think I want to get it right. And, you know, sure. so I'm trying to, I'm trying to right now, cause I'm still in the really early stages. I'm trying to just write, I'm trying to just say, well, for now, just write it. But right. you know, I also, I've been thinking a lot about it. I had put together a panel for AWP last year about this very topic. Mm. Um, if you haven't lived it, can you write it, you know? Yeah. And um, so I've done a lot of thinking about this and reading about it. And, I, and I'm currently teaching the Harlem Renaissance to my, American, to my high school juniors in American Lit. Yeah. And we've been reading Langston Hughes, who talks about County Cullen, who says, I don't want to be known as a Negro writer. I want to be known as a writer. Yeah. And so the key, you know, we've been talking about it with the kids and what do you think and what are they, you know, the pros and cons, I guess, of all of that. And, and can we write stories that aren't our own? And I said, because if, if someone says to me, I can only write about white New England women, yeah. <laughs> right? Right. that's it's pretty limiting, you know? And I said, if I can only write what I know, that means I can't, or what I've experienced, I can't write historical fiction. I can't write fantasy. I can't write sci-fi. Yeah. So on the face of it, I think it's a kind of a ludicrous um, statement, but I also understand where it's coming from, obviously, right? It's coming yeah. from this idea of cultural appropriation and we have to be careful. And I do think we have an obligation to get it right. And I like what Jackie Woodson said, which is, you can't write about me unless you've sat at my table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And I do think I've sat at Faju's table. I think, yeah. you know, I've, I, I, I mean, would I go back for more time? Sure. You know, if I, if I could make that happen, I would too. But I think there's a way in which I am pretty familiar with, um, who Fatu might be, you know, and what she might think. But I also think it's all, it's partially why I've consciously set the book in the U S. Okay. So you feel that you have a more of a comfort level. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, obviously there'll be flashback scenes. There'll be some scenes set in Senegal, but kind of the, the, the narrative, most of the narrative thrust of the book is happening in the, in, in Cambridge, in Massachusetts. Yeah. It's such an interesting point that you that you all are talking about. I think um, it's true. We we don't want all the stories about Senegalese women to be written by Americans. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but at right. the same time, what would we lose if all we did was write about yeah. white women in America? And I think um, we, we would. We would lose out on all those wonderful stories and we would be limiting ourselves as writers. Um, and is that ultimately our job as writers is to be able to, I mean, I say this to my students, right? Like, isn't this, it's important to be able to imagine other people. Yes. It's important to be able to get inside another character and imagine what their life would be like. I think that's yes. 
critical. Yes. Right? And for so long, I feel like uh, literature um, in, in, you know, the European culture was about white men, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, well, we, lost out, we lost out on all those voices. Exactly. Um, and as long as we also, I mean, just talking to a few authors this weekend about diversity, um, I write out of the mystery community, and it's been really wonderful to start to see women coming up, you know, African-American women telling stories, mysteries, yep. um, you know, and, and it's just like, finally, it's just so refreshing <laughs> Yeah, that they're bringing their point of view and their, you know, and I think the genre is so much richer for having all those voices. So I think at the same time, I won't want to, you know, veer away from, you know, never having an African-American, you know, character in my story. Yeah. I have to also acknowledge that they need to be published. You know, those voices need mm -hmm. to come out. And so my African-American culture, you know, uh, character in my story is not a substitute for saying, oh, we don't have to bother yes. finding these writers and making sure that they, their voices exactly. are out there. Yeah. No, exactly. And, and when there's space for criticism, as there is in our yep. literary landscape, the critics can reflect on writing by an author outside of writing outside of her culture or personal experience and that can be just contribute to the conversations about um, race or um, religion and so on two words that come to mind for me in this um, on this topic are imagination you use that patty the importance of course as writers as anyone creating anything um, is the the stretch of the imagination. Yes. And another is empathy. Yes. I bet y'all have read that people who people who read a lot of fiction tend to be more empathetic <laughs> because you are by virtue sitting of sitting down at the literature table with them. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you learn to see the world through other eyes. Yes. Um, yeah. Rich stuff, which is, I think, you know, part of the um, part of the argument that people who um, are very suspicious of other cultures and um, that sort of thing um, use to keep, you know, books, you know, YA books mm -hmm. about kids who are, you know, lesbian or bisexual out of the hands of children because they're afraid that they will somehow, I don't know, <laughs> uh -huh. develop sympathy. I have no idea. But I think that that is so important. We need yes. to hear yeah. other voices, not just for, for, for that child who thinks, oh, I'm the only person in the world that's like this, but also for the rest of us to say, oh, that's, That's what, what it's, it's like. like. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, yeah. I think we need it more than ever now, you know? And, yeah. and I also think my students were, we were talking about this too, but the other thing is we have to, I mean, we might get it wrong. And yeah. so we have to be open to that possibility. Right. Yeah. Right. And, that's, yeah. and, and that, that's okay. Like it's okay yes. to get it wrong and to try again, you know, and to, and to just be able to hear that. And I think that's true whether we're writing or whether we're talking about race or whether we're, mm -hmm. you know, trying to break through any kind of barriers, you know, we might, we might say something wrong. We might, you know, mischaracterize somebody. And I just think we have to be ready to hear that. And it might be uncomfortable and, yep. and we have to go to a place of being uncomfortable in order to grow. And I think that that's very hard for people. Yep. 
Yeah. It's very hard for people to do. So, well, this has been just really lovely to yes. talk to you. I hope I get to meet you in person one of these days. <laughs> that would be fantastic. We're so grateful to you, Patty, for spending some time with us here on The Writer's Story. Again, our guest is Patricia A. Patty Smith. Um, check out her work, all sorts of, and we didn't even talk about writing across genre as a short story We'll have story to just writer. have you back another time. <laughs> a wonderful novelist, and we're eager to hear how your project evolves and develops, Patty. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Well, it was just uh, really wonderful talking to Patty, um, and uh, I know she's a good friend of yours, and you've known each other for a long time. Yes, and we have gotten to know each other through writing. Ah, oh, you know, as much time as we spend all by ourselves in our little closets or at the dining room table striving in our imaginations, it's always such a delight to chat with other writers, to get together with other writers. Yeah, and, so, I, you, and, I, and I know you had a strong, strong writing community in Richmond when you lived there, and uh, we're going to hopefully meet more of the women that you uh, know from that time, and um and that's going to be really exciting. Yeah, um, we're in such a wonderful community, writing community here in Charlottesville, too. I know, and I'm feeling sort of, I always feel this way after the Festival of Book. Mm. I feel really energized um, and excited to get back to the page. So yes. hopefully I will, despite also needing to pack for Paris. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, wow. I know, I know. Here's my tiny violin. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, I, you know, so exciting. Yeah, throw a couple things in a suitcase, and if you don't have it, you can always buy it there. Wow. And boy, what a, what a wonderful place to stock up on your wardrobe. <laughs> there goes my tiny violin again. Yeah, exactly. There goes my savings account. Yeah. <laughs> well, we love having you writer um, readers out there in listening world as a part of our community, too. So we hope you'll join us again next month. Where we'll have another uh, writer um, uh, on the show and find out their story. So yeah. thanks again for joining us.